Hey, welcome to the Monkey House Primates. So, thanks so much. I've asked around here to quickly uh, let you all know that we're in Sydney. We're about to be in Brisbane. So uh, very quick stop in Sydney. We're just here for a few nights. So come and see us. And then what are we doing? We're going up to Brisbane. We're going to do a Who Knew It with Matt Stewart at Good Chat. And we're also doing a couple of Dryer Dryers, our comedy festival show. It's the last run of the whole tour. So come on down, Brisbane. That's right. And in Sydney, we're at the Manning Bar and at the Chippo for the Who Knew It. Really pumped up. Hopefully see you all there. Uh, now on with the show. Ook, ook. What is that what the monkey say? Yeah, ooga cha cha. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. Welcome to Primates, the podcast about primates and popular culture, exploring them from chimpanzee all the way down to chimpanzee. I'm joined, as I am occasionally, by second banana of the show. Welcome, Ooh. Evan Munro-Smith from the Gimity Games, the gaming show. It's good to be here. Hey, it's good to have you here. We're not even meant to be doing an episode today. We're um, ga- gearing up for the 100th episode live spectacular. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Uh, which we're doing in just a couple of days. If people want to watch that live, you can buy tickets via sospresents.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. You better see us. You can see us. For And once. then you can believe us because <laughs> that's how the saying goes. Uh, it's good to have you back in the studio. It's been quite a while, Evan. Yeah, it's good to be here. It's been very, very busy times. Yeah. We'd been, we were just working on um, the Do Go On YouTube show edit for which comes out tomorrow as well. Yeah, uh, it's a fun story about animal cruelty <laughs> and a scandal, but we have a fun time to, talking about it. Um, Turning out so much content, we are. So uh, this week it's it's really a it's it's po mania uh, on the Do Go On Mini Podcast Network. Do Go On did an episode about the life of Edgar Allan Poe and his mysterious death and disappearance. Uh. Mainly the death, because he reappeared, his body was there. I can't even remember. We only recorded a few days ago. <laughs> Dave did a book cheat about uh, one of his stories featuring uh, featuring an orangutan, which um, I'll probably even insert. If you're not a book cheat listener, you can um, listen through to the end of the episode. I'll probably insert it here. Uh, and you, if you're not a book cheat listener, you should be. Uh, so you can yeah. correct that from now on. <laughs> but today I'm going to be talking about another Edgar Allan Poe story, which also featured orangutans. He was just obsessed with orangutans. I was reading it. Was be- he really? Yeah, they, they were in multiple stories. Yeah, right. And apparently it was because at the time um, the Western world didn't know really anything about uh, other of the great apes like gorillas and chimpanzees, but orangutans were starting to be known about. 
he spelt them differently. He spelt orangutans O U R A N G O U T A N G. Yeah, right. Um, which I guess was just yeah one of the oldest style spellings. Yeah, right. Or he just heard it and wrote a guest. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but I guess there were a mystery back then. Yeah, which so which is a, you know an intriguing thing to write about. Totally. Yeah. I'm what it's funny to have lived in a time when there was still so many things being discovered. Yeah. I mean, there's still so much of the world that we don't know today. No, I know it all now. Oh, I know okay. everything. So ask me a question. <laughs> uh, uh, cancer. What do you reckon? Is, 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 is it is it a cure? Oh, okay. It is real. It does exist. Um, <laughs> today I'm going to tell you, Evan, about another one of Edgar Allan Poe's stories. It's called Hop Frog. Okay. Also featuring orangutans. The original title is actually Hop Frog or the Eight Chained Orangutans. Chained? Yeah. I haven't read the, I don't know anything about this. We're going to learn about this together. So this is a um, uh, originally published in 1849, and I'm going to be reading a summary from supersummary.com, uh, who sells themselves as a modern alternative to spark notes and cliff notes, you know, the <laughs> real old hat stuff. Yeah. Um, okay, so let me begin the reading. Uh, the main character, Hopfrog, is a man with dwarfism who extracts revenge on those he serves. The story gained a reputation by critical voices as literary revenge against Elizabeth F. Ellett and her circle of peers. Don't know what that means. The story is also arguably autobiographical. Hopfrog, like Poe, is kidnapped from home and presented to the king, in Poe's case, his wealthy foster father, John Allen. Uh, like Hopfrog, Poe is sensitive to wine and alcohol, tending toward insane rage and uh, when he's been drinking. And the story has many parallels with several of Poe's other short stories. For example, the eight men appear at midnight, which is the same time that the Red Death appears in the doorway in The Mask of the Red Death. <laughs> I mean, uh, a lot happened. Midnight's a, midnight, a spooky it's a classic time. time. It's yeah. a classic time for stuff. It's not going to be like 2.34 or something. <laughs> then that'd be something. Jeez, all these <laughs> things keep happening to what Poe at 2.34. What does it mean? Um, apparently the raven taps on the raider's door in The Raven at that time as well. As well, Hopfrog may have been based on real-life events that happened at Charles the Sixth Court in France in January 1393. Me pausing there was me figuring out Roman numerals. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that takes a second. Pretty simple stuff, but anyway, it took me a second. Uh, Norman Squire suggested the king and the five others dress up as wild men in very flammable costumes. A fire was started. Only Charles and one other men survived. One other man survived. Not a great <laughs> ad for super summary there. <laughs> uh, Hopfrog is the court jester, being a dwarf and a cripple. Jesus, some old school language. Yeah. He plays the part of a frequently abused fool at court. The unnamed king has an insatiable sense of humor, seeming only to live for joking. Hopfrog and his best friend Trippetta, who is a small but well-proportioned dancer in the court, were stolen from their homeland. Essentially slaves, their only choice is to play their parts. Hopfrog gained his nickname from the cruel king because of his limp. Oh, Jesus. I should run. Okay. Sorry. Evan's going to leave this. This is how well um, <laughs> well planned out this was. Yeah. Evan's, Evan's got a meeting. I've got a meeting. But we'll see you on Saturday, Evan. Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to listen to this to hear the rest of the story. <laughs> This is this doesn't even count as a real episode. 
So I think that's fine. Great. Anyway, thanks. It's so good to catch up with you briefly. Evan. Yeah. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Hopfrog has a low tolerance for alcohol, which the king knows and abuses quite often. He makes Hopfrog drink several goblets full while Trepetta begs the king to stop. The king instead strikes her in front of his cabinet council and throws wine in her face. Crikey. wonder when we get to the ape-related stuff. Uh, this makes Hopfrog grit his teeth, but everyone else laughs at the servants. They ask Hopfrog advice about a masquerade in the near future. Hopfrog suggests nearly realistic costumes. Orangutans chained together. Right. The men love this idea because it will scare their guests. They agree to wear the tight-fitting shirts and pants, saturate themselves with tar, and cover themselves with flax. What's flax? Flax is like... Double check. Flax is like a seed or something, isn't it? Flax, also known as common flax or linseed, is a member of the genus Linum in the family Linaceae. Uh, it is a food and fiber crop cultivated in cooler regions of the world. Okay, I don't, I don't know how much Edgar Allan Poe really knew about how, <laughs> how orangutans looked because that feels. Yeah, I think men with tar and seeds on them isn't going to be super. I mean, it'll be it will be scary, like they're hoping. But I think in a way that they're not really anticipating. Ah, oh, these seed men are coming to life. Ah, oh, the seed the crops are coming to get us. Maybe that. Well, let's see. Maybe that's what happens. Uh, the men love this idea because it will scare their guests. Uh, so just after midnight. The men are chained together and led into the grand salon filled with their guests dressed as masqueraders. The guests are as shocked as the king and his council wanted them to be. Many of them believe the men to be real beasts of some kind, if not precisely orangutans. Yeah, I reckon probably not. (laughs) The seed men! Uh, Many of them begin to flee to the doors to escape. But the king, having anticipated this, has had the doors locked. The keys are left with his unwisely trusted jester, Hopfrog. Oh, you've made a you've made a big mistake, King. Chaos and shoes. Love that. Love when chaos and shoes. Hopfrog attaches a chain from the ceiling to the chain that holds the men, still in their monstrous costumes, together. He pulls the chain and they are hoisted up via a pulley system. It is presumed that this is managed by Trepetta. Who had arranged the room? Uh, who had arranged the room somewhere in the background? As the men hang above the crowd of people, Hopfrog performs for the crowd. The audience, lulled in a sense of safety by Hopfrog's dramatic flair and presentation, believes this to be a well-contrived show for the king's guests. Hopfrog claims he might discover the identity of the culprits by looking at them very closely. He climbs up the chain and holds the torch in his hand close to the men's faces. Suddenly, covered as they are in flax and tar, they catch fire. Holy shit! In seconds, the eight men have caught on fire and are burning ferociously, despite the the screams erupting from the audience, who are horror-stricken and have not the slightest ability to stop the events. Hopfrog and Trepetta escape out of a skylight on the roof, but... but not before Hopfrog gives his final speech to the audience. He says he, he says he sees that 
He says he sees what manner of people the Burning Men are. They are a great king and his seven counsellors, a king who does not hesitate to beat a girl who cannot defend herself, and seven other men who encourage him to do so. He announces his name, Hopfrog, saying that this is his final jest. Holy shit! That's wild. Okay. <laughs> I missed the key part that those the uh, people dressed as the uh, flaxseed monsters were the king and his council. That was a key bit. I think I probably read it, but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't sink into my mind. What a full-on revenge story that is! Horrific. Okay, well that's a bit of fun. Um, anyhow, I uh, really was just dropping into a quick episode to um to be involved in in Poe Mania, which is on the Do Go On Network. Um, and yeah, also just to let you know about the hundredth episode, it's going to be big. It's going to be even uh, more planned out than this very brief episode here today. Um, but uh, the next thing you're going to hear is an episode of Book Cheat, which I did with the book Chook himself, David Warnicky, a few days ago. And he explains in much better detail the story of uh, the murders in the Rue Morgue, which is another one of Edgar Allan Poe's famous short stories. Uh, and it is also the first ever detective story of its kind, which is so it's hugely influential. Dave explains all of that in the episode coming up. Um, so, yeah, if you haven't heard it already, please do check it out. And uh, otherwise, I'll see you next week with the 100th episode and the final one before we go on a bit of a hiatus or a hiatus, as some people are saying. Uh, so until then, please enjoy this episode of Book Cheat. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Book Cheat, the book club podcast where I've read the book so you don't have to. My name is Dave Warnicky, and on each episode of this show, we look at one of the classics. And joining me to look at such a classic, it's a returning guest for a returning author, it's Matt Stewart. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for, I assume you're talking about me as the returning author. Yes, I have <laughs> penned a few tweets in my day. And I think of them all as little short stories. Mm, I th- I, and they're all bestsellers, is that right? <laughs> they are. Yeah. If you count like three or four retweets, handful of favourites. I think that's all it takes to get on top of the New York Times bestselling list these yeah. days. It's changed. The economy is very different now. No one's buying books. They're liking tweets. Right? It's so good to be back in the hen house here with the book chook. Now, pecking away. Thank you so much for joining me again. I've got to say, have I made it up to you yet? Because you are on the first ever episode of this show, and then nearly went a whole year, you told me, without me asking you back. And now I've had you on the last three of the last four episodes. Yeah. Can you stop it, yeah. actually? <laughs> huh? I've got huh? other things to do. Yeah. And I thought that might be the case. I'll just keep asking you back until you say, all right, actually, I don't want to be part of this anymore. I, this is such an honor to be one-on-one with the master. Can't believe it. I think this is the... Yeah, we were talking about this before. I've just worked out this is the first one-on-one episode. It's me, you, and today, Edgar Allan Poe. But we'll get to him in just a minute. Whoa. People would be paying top dollar to be one-on-one with the chook, I reckon. <laughs> well, you have, haven't you? 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that all part of the deal was we were going to keep the money quiet. But yeah, okay, now the secret's out. I've paid a pretty penny. You pay a pretty penny and you get to be on three or four of the shows. Yeah, you get to sit and listen. You get to sit at the lap of the master book booksman. Thank you. Is that how you think of yourself? Every day, yes. Um, no, I'm I'm really looking forward to getting into this. I've just finished a... I think I've talked about it on the last few appearances. I make my way through books very slowly, <laughs> even when they're audio books. Um, because I only really I listen to them about forty five minutes at a time, and the one I've been listening to is a pretty long one. I think it was about nine hours long or something. Uh, Leonard Cohen's biography by Sylvie Simmons, and uh, it's called "I'm Your Man." It was great, great listen slash read. <laughs> um, and did it detail his entire life? Because he's obviously he lived a long, long life with many decades of music. Yeah, it went through it all um, until uh, it actually finished before he died. So um, it was it ended with him going to start the recording of what would become Popular Problems, which wasn't even his last album. So that was um, the album before that many saw as his last album. And then he enjoyed it, released another one two years later. And then another one two years after that. <laughs> then he died and that didn't stop him. He released... Another album, uh, three years after, or a couple of years after he died, he released one last album. He's that good. Which takes skill. Yeah. <laughs> he, reco- he recorded the vocals with the, I believe, obviously the book didn't get this far, so this is unconfirmed, but I'm pretty sure he, he recorded the vocals and discussed with his son how he wanted the music to go, and then his son organised, um, included playing himself um, the last album, which was... All his final albums all got rave reviews. He was just uh, uh, on a hot streak in his 70s into his 80s. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Make yeah. best work in your 80s. The highest chart, His highest charting albums of his career, I think, in America were in his last four albums, I believe. Wow. I mean, which is one can only hope, gives us all hope, right, to be in the top 10 in our 80s, finally? T- totally. It has definitely... He, Actually, he was uh, was older than you are now when he released his first album. So there is, you actually got a head start on him with the, your work for uh, Weed Hornet. Weed Hornet, thank you. Yes, the released our Australian ska band. Yes, released yeah. our first EP in uh, two thousand and four. So got quite yeah, the head when start. You were just a baby. Yeah, yeah, it was. He, the, I think his womb. first album came out when he was thirty-two or thirty-three. Wow. And uh, how old was he when he? Um used his first hypnotism to get his maid to strip for him, as mentioned on the first the first time you brought up that this book on this show. I think it was when he was about... I think he was eight years old. Wild. <laughs> wild story. And it's just a little footnote at the start of his life. <laughs> yeah, different times. Their 30s, I reckon. You know, people were hypnotising their maids, getting them to get naked. Yeah, there's something really <laughs> off about that story, but do you reckon... That, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to cast aspersions about this maid, but a grown-up going, no, that boy, he made me strip with his mind. <laughs> Maybe he was that All good. Right, lady, he, was, come with us. he was that good. He transfixed Maybe. people for for eight decades. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, the- uh, but uh, yeah, so I've finished that now. I'm I'm looking forward to getting on to the next book, um, which is a Aiden Simpson second novel just arrived in the mail. So looking forward to getting cracking with that one. A physical book too, Dave. 
Really? You'd be happy to hear. Yeah. Do you remember how to read? I'm, I've become like a real hipster, you know? <laughs> I like... It's like going to vinyl. Yeah, Spotify's fine, but I really like to hear the richness of the <laughs> needle on the vinyl. It's the same with me and, and uh, books. You know, all the kids read audio books, but for me, it's all about that page. Yeah, kids these days don't even know that books used to come in book form. <laughs> That's right. They don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, books? What do you mean? Audiobook, yeah. Send me the MP3, old man. <laughs> yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, today you are joining me for... It's the first one-on-one. It's also... This is the first ever crossover podcast. We are crossing over between three of our podcasts. So, you and I and Jess Perkins host Do Go On, a comedy history show. Then you started the spin-off Primates, where you look at primates in popular culture, things like King Kong, or that episode where we covered the Troy McClure um, Planet of the Apes musical on The Simpsons, if you remember, Matt. Oh, I mean, so many classic moments from the primates oeuvre. There's so many. And you are just about to... Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Is that what a chimp would say? Um, Yeah. We're we're about to... Well, you're about to celebrate 100 episodes of the show and go on hiatus. Before doing that, we thought we would do a triptych crossover between our three podcasts. Of course, Book Cheat, we look at books. So what we've got here is Edgar Allan Poe's The Murder in the Rue Morgue. Oh, and I think I learnt on this week's Do Go On that this was the first ever detective novel. That is right. Absolutely. That's why we are we are covering it. And then on Do Go On, the episode that comes out the day after this comes out, so most people, by the time you hear it, will, it will be out, is about the life and mysterious death of the book's author, Edgar Allan Poe, which is a crazy, crazy life he led. The thing I'm uh, most fascinated about finding out is where do the monkeys come in? And because you are the primate primatologist or host of primates, at, at the very least. Amateur primatologist. Yeah, thank you, thank you. There is a, I don't want to give away too much, but possibly a primate might appear in this novel, making it a three-way crossover. I like it, you're holding the cover up there, and there's clearly an orangutan. <laughs> Shh, is that right? Shh, there is an orangutan <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> because... I wanted to show you the the cover, Matt, and I'll put a photo on our Instagram and Twitter and Facebook for Book Cheat because I don't know if you know this, Matt, but you actually own 50% of the novel I'm holding in my hand now. This isn't just mine. Oh, right. Wow. Last year in November, we were lucky enough to tour Ireland and the UK with our Do Go On podcast. And after the show, sometimes people would uh, give me books in the hope that I would do them on the show, which was absolutely lovely. Like, give me a classic book. And then um, Russ Brown gave me Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. And uh, he's, he's got a little message for us here. He's written on the inside cover. So, Dear Dave and Matt, I got you this book to share. You should do a crossover podcast with Bookcheat and Primates about this. I mean, come on. Look at the cover. That is one seriously gnarled and jacked up ape. <laughs> 
Plus, it's reportedly the first ever detective novel that inspired Arthur Conan Doyle, etc. Love you guys and Jess. Cheers. Russ Brown. Bath, 2019, baby. Then he's written in brackets, Bristol. Fuck, I forgot it's Bristol this time. Shit, don't read this bit. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. I was saying to someone the other day, um, I was around at my folks, actually. I was probably saying it to my mum, but she found a book that was given to me when I was four. And it it had um, an inscription from my auntie and uncle who gave it to me with the date and everything. I'm like, every book that's a present should have an inscription and be dated on the inside. Definitely. I reckon it's a, it's a real fascinating sort of um, time capsule. Yeah, definitely. And so big thanks to Ross for giving that to the both of us. Uh, this one has also been suggested by Alec McElroy from Kansas and Sean Spinner or Spinner from Boston, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Beautiful. <laughs> God's country. Beautiful place. Beautiful place. Apart from the cover that I've just shown you there, do you know much about this book, this short story? Uh, only from what I learned on Do Go On This Week, where you said it was the first ever detective uh, novel. So I'm guessing it's some sort of Agatha Christie-esque or, um, or like you said before, Sherlock Holmes-esque sort of story. But um, yeah, you, you would be correct in, in guessing that, absolutely. So I'll tell you about it. The Murders in the Rue Morgue is a short story by American writer Edgar Allan Poe. It first appeared in, uh, and we talked about this on the podcast on Do Go On, Graham's Magazine in April 1841, <laughs> while Poe was working on the magazine as the editor. <laughs> Graham's Magazine. And you also said, despite it sounding like a, a backyard operation, it, is, it was legit and actually quite a, a decent publication. Yeah, that's right. And he was actually, he didn't get paid too much during his lifetime. It's so funny how influentially it has been 150 years since. But he didn't make too much money from writing in his lifetime. He struggled a lot, but he got paid fairly well for this, apparently. It is often pointed to as the first detective story ever written. It had profound influence on popular culture especially influencing Arthur Conan Doyle to create Sherlock Holmes. That's, so there you go. That's cool. You're a big, you're a big uh, Arthur D- Conan Doyle fan as well, aren't you, Dave? You love a detective story. I love it. Uh, yeah, I love a detective story, especially with, um, which is what this has, a, uh, an eccentric character at the, at the center of it, a Hercule Poirot, a Sherlock Holmes. Right. A, uh, uh, a what, Dr. Mrs. Mark Sloan from Diagnosis Murder, yeah. for example. Yeah, or uh, uh, what murder she wrote. She isn't eccentric? Yeah, well, I guess so, a little bit. Jessica Fletcher? Yeah, Jessica Fletcher, that wildcat. She can't be tamed. Oh, cannot be tamed. Yeah, absolute eccentric type. (laughs) Mild-mannered novelist. (laughs) Mm. Well, I always start with the opening line, and or the opening few lines, and... um, just to paint the picture, and this is how The Murders in the Rue Morgue starts. The mental features discoursed of as the analytical are in themselves but little susceptible of analysis. We appreciate them only in their effects. We know of them, among other things, that they are always to their possessor, when inordinately possessed, a source of the liveliest enjoyment. What do, you th- what do you think of that? That's a mouthful. It is a mouthful, and you know, somewhere in the middle, I got distracted for half a second, and now I it made absolutely no sense to me. I have no idea what that meant. It is the kind of point where you're listening on the audiobook and you're rewinding thirty seconds just to try and catch up. <laughs> Sorry, what is he talking? If about? If I could have, I would have rewound you then. 
<laughs> well, I've got to tell you, the first few pages are written like that, and um, it's it's a little bit confusing, but it eventually sort of makes sense. So our story is told to us by an unnamed narrator, and it goes on like that for a few pages. The narrator at length tells us about two ways to approach a problem and uses examples of each. The first is chess, or drafts, a game enjoyed by intelligent people with sets of moves with an emphasis on memory and playing by the book. You know, there's a standard way to play chess for the most part. The other example he gives, however, is a game of whist, a card game that was big in the 19th century, a bit like bridge, where the game has rules, but a good player examines his opponent and deduces clues from their body language and facial expressions as well. Okay. So that sounds fun. Maybe. So he's, so he's talking talking about how some people just use their mental intelligence, but other types use their mental intelligence as well as examining and putting clues together from things that they observe. Right. This does sound totally like this is Sherlock Holmes. Right? Exactly. That kind of person, like, d- deducing things from observation. The narrator introduces introduces us to this way of thinking with reason and imagination and explains that the story we're about to hear will make sense in terms of that second kind of thinking with the observations. So that's the little intro to suck you in, which to be honest, I had to push through the first few pages, but then the story starts and it gets good. But I guess before this was all a bit of a cliche, that's probably all very fascinating. Totally. That's what you got, I got to keep reminding myself when I was reading this. I was like, I got to remember that this was never done before. None of this. So you got to give the guy a lot of credit. Yeah, cut him a bit of slack. Yeah. So the narrator introduces us to a character that he became acquainted with in Paris, where our story is set. A young man by the name of Monsieur August C. Dupin. August C. Dupin. Dupin was from a wealthy family originally, but had fallen on hard times. He had enough money to just scrape by. His only luxury was books. Hmm? Kids, do you know what those are? Well, I mean, he'd hate these days. Yeah. I don't even know know what to do. My only luxury is MP3s. (laughs) Yeah. A Kindle. I'd die for even a Kindle. (laughs) Give us a Kindle. So the, the narrator met Dupin one day when they were at a library in Montmartre in Paris and both reached for the same book at the same time. So a really nice meet-cute moment. <laughs> I've, Montmartre, that's, in, that's a, a Parisian suburb sort of thing, right? Yeah. Sure when I the, did the walking tour of Montmartre. Yeah, a lot of the uh, lot of sites around that area, definitely. That's where there was, yeah, um, is that sort of vaguely near uh, the bloody, what's that, um, there was a musical about it a little while ago with high Mul- kicks and stuff. Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge. Yeah, I think that was, I think if I'm not confusing memories, I think it's in that area. And it's also, there was some tales about Picasso as well, living around there somewhere. Ah, yes, yeah, so a very... He's quite uh, a famous artist. Yeah. Yeah. If you, I've heard if of you him. don't know Dave. I've heard of him. <laughs> Pablo, to his friends. Oh, right. Of which, of course, you are yeah. one. Yeah, that's right. We're pretty close, me and Pabs. <laughs> You're pretty close. Really close friends a, call him Pabs. You may have been to a place he once lived, maybe. I think I might have walked past his, one of his apartments. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah. I think I know Pablo Picasso. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
You could say. So they both reached for the same book and then met each other. They then kept running into each other here and there around Paris, having little bits of conversation to the point where they agreed that the narrator could rent with Dupin whilst he stayed in Paris because they're both looking for a place to stay and they could split the bills, basically. Right. I think that's... I think that's good. That's smart. Thriftiness. You know, some people are like, hey, I'll look my, down my nose at you. But I think that's just smart. That's just, you know, nothing wrong uh, with a little bit of thrift. Dave, what do you think about that? I'm with you. I mainly like it because I love the phrase, um, uh, <laughs> the phrase that is absolutely escaping me right now. Which you absolutely love. I'm trying to pad oh, for you. Oh, I love that. I love that term. Thrift. So much that it is. Abs- I've absolutely blanked on it. If you think I should of, have had a dare iced coffee. Oh, but, um, instead of a tea. If you think of it, let yeah. me know. Your face is lit up. You are on Google, aren't you? Are you trying to Google thr- <laughs> thr- thrift phases? Uh, or phrases? Uh, economic. Econ- how do you spell economic? Economic uh, thriftness. I gotta tell you, this better be a good phrase now. Oh man, what is this fucking phrase? <laughs> it's not even thriftness. What is the? F- uh, I'm actually oh, fiscally conservative is the phrase that I love. <laughs> what did you? It Google? was not worth what? it. But what did you Google? I didn't come. I couldn't find it. Don't you have that thing where your brain only gives it to you once you've started Googling it? That happens to me yeah. all the time where I'm like, what is that word? And I'll start to Google it and my brain will be like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize you really wanted to know. I'll just tell you. You dog. <laughs> my brain is such a dog. In the bad way. I know you love dogs and you've probably heard that as a compliment. Love a dog. Yeah, great. Can I pat it? Pat my brain. It's yeah. real soft. It's real, I've got a real go. smooth brain. So we're up to the bit where they've decided to live together in an, a moth-ridden old mansion. That's where they're living. They lived alone, welcoming no visitors and shutting out their former acquaintances. Dupin had a knack for deducing information about people based on their appearance and thought patterns alone. The narrator gives right. us an example. One night they were walking together and the narrator, they've been silent for about 15 minutes on the walk, he was silently in his mind thinking about an actor when Dupin said out of nowhere, he's a very little fellow, that's true, and would do better for the theatre de varieties. The narrator says, there can be no doubt of that, I replied unwittingly, and not at first observing the extraordinary manner in which the speaker had chimed in with my meditations. That's not, that's not just deduction, that is, that's mind reading. You can't look at someone's facial expression and go, I know you're th- what you're thinking. It's about this specific actor. Yeah, well, he, he goes, mate, how the hell did you know what I was thinking? Like, that is, uh, that's crazy. Explain yourself. And, Dupin, and he said, elementary, my dear. <laughs> well, he does that real Sherlock Holmes thing where he goes back through uh, a list of things that all point in one direction that, he, that sort of set him off so he explains that 15 minutes earlier he observed the narrator get bumped in the street by a fr- someone carrying fruit that pushed him into some unmade section of the footpath which made him think a long chain of thoughts explained in great detail in the book that ended in the narrator thinking about this short actor and Dupin was like ah oh, you're clearly thinking about this guy <laughs> that is that's pretty ridiculous so did, did that add up to you the way it was explained 
Well, it was so overly complicated that I actually struggled to uh, summarize it for the show. I was like, lots of thoughts. Suddenly he's thinking about a Greek god. You know, it's, it's really all over the place. And it's like, hey, he goes, I know you're at this point now. Why didn't he think he was still at the Greek god part? He also knew how fast he'd be moving on this thought train as well. Yeah, I think the final bit is he observes the, uh, he ex- observes the narrator sort of stand up straight. And then he's like, I knew you were thinking about how short that actor was. <laughs> that's great i love it basically it's a plot device to show us his amazing ability to work backwards to form a conclusion and also focus on things in minute detail which he's going to do in the novel a real sherlock holmes type i've written here i hear you say well that's because this character greatly influenced arthur conan doyle and his creation of sherlock holmes and arthur conan doyle was very open about that he praised poe oh, right. and was like it wasn't like he ripped him off and then denied it. He was like, yeah, he's the one that created this thing. He inspired me. It is an interesting thing, like the lines between inspiration and ripping off, you know, plagiarism versus inspiration. And it's the same with like, you know, like musical genres. They all start somewhere and then the influence is passed on and no one starts a band with a fully brand new sound, right? So I don't really know how, I don't know where you draw the line. It it, is, and it also is a thing where if it's one band that has such a distinctive sound and only one person um, is inspired by that, it's like, you've ripped them off because it's only you and them who sound like that. But if a whole scene explodes, it's like, yeah, this is just a genre now. Right? Yeah, very confusing. Do you have an answer yeah. for me, Dave? Well, no, because with the Arthur Conan Doyle thing, like Sherlock Holmes obviously is much more famous than August C. Dupin, even though he influenced mm. him a lot. So it's, it's, it is, it's really tricky. Yeah, I think it's this, it's similar like, you know, say Nirvana with the poster poster boys of grunge, but they, were, they weren't the ones who started the scene in Seattle. There were bands that came before them, like maybe Mudhoney and bands like that, I think. But, you know, it's just not how it works necessarily. One, it's about timing and luck and all these other things as well. Totally. I have to talk everything back through uh, the grunge scene of Seattle in the early 90s. It's the only yep. way I can make sense of the world. Yeah, I've noticed you connect a lot of things back to that. <laughs> That's why I'm often muttering to myself, what would Kurt Cobain do? <laughs> yeah. mm. And then you think, never mind. <laughs> there you go. There's a reference. I was thinking, trying to think of one. <laughs> that's a good one so this plot it's basically just to show that he's this this out of this world thinker that observes things that no one else would ever know uh, soon after this our narrator and Dupin read a story in the newspaper detailing a horrible double murder at Rue Morgue a street in Paris where Madame Le Espagne and her daughter Mademoiselle Camille had been found dead in their home Neighbours had had been awoken by them screaming in the middle of the night. They also heard two voices from within the apartment, followed by silence. Okay. Concerned by the screams, the neighbours and the two police broke into the locked apartment to find a grisly crime scene before them, which included a blood-smeared razor, locks of grey hair, bags of money and an opened safe. Ooh. But the two women were nowhere to be seen. The police did find soot in the room leading to the chimney, which was immediately searched and found to contain the body of Camille, who had been choked 
and throttled to death and then stuffed into the chimney feet first. So her head was at the bottom of the chimney. Oh, Jesus. That is grisly. Yeah. I'm afraid it gets... And seems unnecessary. I'm afraid it gets even grislier with this next sentence. Her mother, Madame L'Espagne, was found out in the back courtyard of the building, having been beaten and her throat cut so deep that when the body was moved, her head came off. Shit. Uh, yeah, that's no good. He doesn't spare no on the violence, Edgar Allan Poe, I must say. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that does. That feels like, um, you know, modern day over-the-top gore. But it's always been there. <laughs> it's always been there. It's always been there. You know, it's, it's just a part of humanity. The darkness. I'm, I was... At first, I thought when you said it was a double murder, I thought someone had been killed twice. So, um, this is <laughs> obviously a very different thing and a very grisly thing. So. It was actually a quadruple murder because they were both murdered twice. Oh, they're both double murdered. Yeah, it's Jeez. a double-double murder. Double-doubles are good in basketball, not so good in murder. No. <laughs> I've always said that. Yeah, right. So I, I do. I mean, obviously, got to put to one side how fucked up things are. You got to put to one side those sort of things and just um, concentrate on the on the now the the intrigue. They've mm. left a few tantalising clues, haven't they? The locks of grey hair, uh, the soot. Oh no, we knew we understand what the soot was from. <laughs> what was the other one? But what could the soot be? Where could it be from? <laughs> Where could it be from? <laughs> well, that's if it, if it was in, in Poirot, that's what Inspector Jap would begin there saying. Yeah. I reckon the answer lies in the soot, Poirot. Poirot's like, oh my god. <laughs> no, that wouldn't be. That wouldn't be. That would be uh, not Jap. That would be oh, um, Hastings. Hastings. Oh, I say. I say. But Poirot? what of the soot? Do you think this 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 soot has anything to do with it? Do you think so? <laughs> I noticed a charming uh, young lady down the street who seemed very innocent, and I'm very attracted to her. What do you mean she's the murderer? What? She seems so nice. She has a nice smile, Poirot. And a beautiful car. <laughs> no, he's so he's so easily taken in. Poor Hastings. Yeah, but so what? So the main clues there were the the locks of grey hair. That feels pretty big. And then there were ba- the open safe. open safe and bags of money. So right. And at first. The police thought it was a robbery gone wrong, but the large sum of money left in the room quickly ruled that out. Like, why would you kill two people and then leave without the money if you wanted the money? Why would you kill two people, take the time to put a body in a chimney, but leave the money? Right. I mean, they could be dealing with an idiot. That is... That's true. <laughs> Imagine that pose just written. <laughs> the big reveal at the end is, yeah, it was just a real dumb idiot <laughs> murderer. Dumb. And people were like, well, it is the first detective story. This is still original. <laughs> Yeah. So does our man come in at this point? No. So is he is he is he already known as a a crime solver in this world? No, not known as a crime solver. Just a very uh, smart thinker, but he's kept to himself basically. But the, right. he's still reading the newspaper with the narrator, and they're going, "Oh, because the crime's gripping Paris. Everyone's wondering what's going what's what's going on." And we we hear more from the article. The newspaper also detailed the neighbors had heard screams, and what they'd told police about them. They all agreed that as they ran up the stairs to break down the door, they heard sounds of a struggle and two distinct voices inside. One gruff and the other one shrill. Oh, right. 
Hey, what are we going to do about these bodies? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I wish I don't have mine. <laughs> He's like, shut up. It's 2 a.m. I can't deal with this voice right now. <laughs> well, okay, so it's probably two murderers. Well, and these, double murderers. These are the descriptions. <laughs> committing a double murder. A double, double murder. By a double murder duo. <laughs> Four. Um, the people told the police, and this is put in the newspaper so Dupin can read it, they all agreed that the gruff voice was that of a French man, but the shrill voice could be a man or a woman. They're not sure. Differing accounts. It wasn't clear what they were saying, and none of the witnesses could agree what language that second voice was even speaking, and it was speculated upon by each of them that it, that it could have been speaking English. Someone said it was speaking Dutch, someone said it sounded Italian, another one said it sounded Spanish. But... Each of the witnesses were f- from these different countries. So there was an English person, a Dutch person, an Italian, and a Spanish person. And they were each sure that the language spoken was not from one of their countrymen. So the English person would right. say, it sounded Dutch to me. And then the Dutch person would say, it sounded Italian to me. And it went round in this circle where they all discounted each other. Oh, so it's like a, almost like a reverse speaking in tongues where everyone can understand you. <laughs> this is someone speaking in a language no one can understand. So that's one big problem. Right. Well, and it's hard for me to to avoid um, the cover of the book with the orangutan. But I mean, an orangutan does not sound like it's speaking any language. Does it sound gruff or shrill? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I yeah, I'm trying to picture what an orangutan sounds like. Um, just I have to go back through my um frame frames of um, reference. Like uh, doesn't Dunstan checks in? What did Dunstan sound like? <laughs> or um, <laughs> oh hello. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, no, it's hello. shrill. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dunstan, and uh, yeah, but uh, but sometimes I sound Italian. Buongiorno. <laughs> Buongiorno. Just Dunstan here checking in. No worries. <laughs> He's always saying his catchphrase. Au revoir. No worries. Dunstan off. Dunstan out. Yeah, that's what he'd often say. Yeah, always said that. He's always checking in that guy. Been a while since I've seen it, but yeah, I think that's how I remember it anyway. So for for the people in the book, that's one big part of the mystery. What where that voice was from, who they are, all that sort of stuff. The other is that it appears no one could have gotten out of the locked building. It was the doors and windows were all locked from the inside. But no killers remained. Where did they go? All very mysterious. Oh, they're the best. They're the best clues. I love those ones where it's like this. It doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. And though, and where there's no way that the murderer could have got out. They're great little mysteries. How do they do? Um, it? you've just, that's the first bit that's really got me in the the locks of grey hair. I had a little. I was dipping a toe into intrigue, <laughs> but. <laughs> Lock from the inside. I'm all the way in. You love anything that locks from the inside. (laughs) Anything that's... It was coming from the inside. (gasps) It was coming from the inside in a shrill voice. (laughs) All right, I'm listening. I'm trapped inside. (laughs) The evening edition of the paper. So this is back in a time when there's a morning and evening edition of the paper. Reports a new development. The police had arrested Adolphe... Le Bon, incredible name, Adolphe Le Bon, a bank clerk who um, had delivered some coins to the murdered women the day before they died. But apart from that, no real evidence seemed to have been laid against him, so they just assumed it was him. Wait, what's the evidence? 
he'd been at the scene of the crime delivering money the day before. And they thought, well, right. maybe he scoped That's a low bar. It, scoped out the joint. I can see why you might want to question him, but arrest him. This is also uh, the f- first example of the uh, well-worn trope of the clever detective and the bumbling police force. Right. Great. It's a great combo. So there's the development that this Le Bon has been arrested. Dupin was already intrigued by the case, muses on this to the narrator, and that is basically he knows Le Bon from a few years back. We don't know how, but he knows the bank clerk. They've done business together before. He knows he's innocent, so now he's got a reason to want to crack the case. He was already intrigued. Right. But now he's all the way in. He's got a cash reward. Hmm. And he's also well-connected from his old his family was well connected so he knows the uh the prefect of police so he contacts them and says can i have a look around the crime scene and being an old friend of this police prefect they're granted permission to actually go and check out the crime scene for themselves oh right okay yeah so these are the because i always wonder about that how do they first get there in you know uh, these detectives that aren't really detectives. Yeah, like you can't just turn up to a crime scene in real life and be like, "Can I have a can I have a squiz?" <laughs> yeah, and it, normally they start with the, um, you know, like Poirot or whatever. I think at the st- he was already a world famous detective when his stories began. Is that right? Yeah, he'd he'd so, been a police officer in Belgium before. Yeah, so he's got an in right, whereas. Uh, or, you know, in Diagnosis Murder, he's always just there when there's a murder and his son's a cop. <laughs> right. His son is the inn. Barry Van Dyke is the inn. Steve Sloan. I've, he's got a... That's a pretty solid inn there. Why is your dad, the old doctor, coming along? I don't know. He's my dad. <laughs> I can't say no. I to bring him. Can't say no. A couple of interesting things I've noticed. This is clearly in a pre-Third Reich world because uh, I don't think Adolf is... is <laughs> Very popular name anymore. No, but back then, every second person. Yeah. And also, did you know this? Um, the name Le Bon means the Bon in French. Really? Adolf the Bon? Yeah. What? That's right. Uh, and I think because Bon Bon or Bon Bon means um, thank you very much or something like that. So I think Bon, the singular Bon just means thank you. Ah, uh, but not very much, just a little. Yeah, that's right. So if you want to really give it to him, you say bon bon. Bon bon. Um, bon bon. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the only other Le Bon I know is the singer from Duran Duran. That's Simon, Simon Le Bon. Le bon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was obviously named after this guy. Very influential. Wow. But it's amazing how much this story, the first ever of its kind, is the it's the exact same dynamic of Poirot and... Uh, you know, all the Agatha Christie ones. Oh, pretty much all of them. Uh, Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare. Shakespeare, that's right. Sherlock. Macbeth. Sherlock. <laughs> I, I really confuse Sherlock and Shakespeare. My brain is not a that smart. But um, <laughs> but they both start with the sh word, and they've got stuff to do with books. I mean... Sh sound. Oh, no. Stop me. Can you, can you please go on? Right, I will. So, they're allowed to search the house... And afterwards, uh, they went home where Dupin pulled out two pistols and told his friend, the narrator, that they were now awaiting the arrival of a man who might not be responsible for, but who would be able to explain the murder. And we're like, what are you talking about? 
He says he might not come, but Dupin thought he would, and if necessary, they should be ready to detain him. So that's why he's got got the pistols out. Ah. Dupin, this is cool. our smart, smart man, has identified a few things that should point to the killer's identity. First of all, he has a shrill voice with no recognisable words. Hi, hello, yes, it's me. <laughs> Bonbon, oh, Bonbon, oh, Simon the Bond, big fan, big, big fan. <laughs> Hungry like the wolf. <laughs> what is this guy talking what about? These words make no sense. <laughs> So none of the speakers of different languages could understand what he was saying because he was just making noises, is what Dupin has decided. Right. It wasn't a language at all. He goes on, This killer had the agility to get in through the window, which appeared nailed shut to police, but Dupin, upon examining, discovered that they operate by springs and can be opened from the inside, and that one of the nails was loose. Uh. Police were still baffled as to how he got inside because it's like about three stories up this window. But Jubin hypothesized that someone of great agility could leap from the lightning rod, tall rod, outside the window to the shutters of the window and then get in through the window that way. Okay. Someone with great agility. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder who it could be. Hmm. Simon Le Bon, perhaps? Who could it be? Dunstan checking <laughs> in. Checking in and then accidentally killing two people. Um, Dupin has observed... Yeah, that doesn't add up, does it? No. Dupin really? has also observed that the killer has superhuman strength as he was able to shove the younger victim up a chimney, which is obviously pretty hard to do. Dupin notes that he's cruel and violent and also seems to have no real motive. Finally, he's also noted... The giant fingerprints on Mademoiselle Le Espagne's neck and the hair that she had on her fingertips wasn't actually human hair at all. So what the heck is going on? I ask you that, Matt. What do you think's going on? Well, I, I mean, it feels like the cover's got a bit of a spoiler on there, right? With the orangutan. Surely the orangutans involved somewhere here, but they don't have silver hair. I don't think. I don't ever think the older orangutans do, do they? Gorillas get silverbacks, <laughs> I believe. Um, as a an amateur primatologist, I certainly know that that is the case. But Well, I'm afraid yeah, you'll, have why to, would... you'll have to suspend belief on the colour of hair for just a moment here, I'm afraid. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't ever know that that is true. But why? what's the other voice, the one speaking French? And why is he there? Yeah, very confusing. Well, Dupin surmises there's only one explanation possible, and that is that the killer is an orangutan. Mm. <laughs> Agree to disagree. <laughs> They're not killers. They're gentle giants. I would have believed if it was a chimpanzee, maybe. Well, Dupin quotes from a textbook that he read about about orangutans and that's how he knows this he says read now this passage from Cuvier it was a minute anatomical and generally descriptive account of the large fulvous orangutan of the East Indian Islands the gigantic stature the prodigious strength and activity the wild ferocity and the imitative propensities of these mammalia are sufficiently well known to all I understood the full horrors of the murder at once wow that is pretty amazing. 
Yeah. He's pretty, pretty amazing deductions. So Dupin's theory is that the first voice of the Frenchman was um, from a man who just witnessed the murders but didn't participate. Ah. But who's not wanted to come forward with this, his story of being implicated in the orangutan's killing. Dupin still believes the orangutan is still on the run. But to try and lure this Frenchman, this witness, to him and the narrator, Dupin has placed an ad in a newspaper. And it reads like this. Court. A very large, tawny orangutan of the Bornese species. The owner may have the animal again upon identifying it satisfactorily and paying a few charges arising from its capture and keeping. Yep. Yep. I reckon this guy's an idiot. He'll come in. <laughs> it's one of those classic examples of when you've lost something and you have to describe it to the person who found it to prove that you know. It's like, all right, lost yep. an orangutan, have you? It's like a... How about you describe it for me, huh? This is a bit big, uh, sort of apish, sort of uh, long arms. Oh, well, say no more. I've uh, got him right here. You've definitely seen him before. Got these big flanges on the side of its head. Sort of looks like its face is a plate. You could eat off its face. It's got a big, beautiful, platey head. Why do they do that? I'm sure I've learnt that. They've got plate heads. Yeah. But only the older ones. You've got to eat somewhere. Fascinating stuff. That's true. <laughs> you once you get older, you know every every animal treats their elders differently. The orangutans, they treat them like crockery. <laughs> That's the ultimate sign of respect. Having a four course dinner <laughs> on your grandfather's face. <laughs> oh wow! Beautiful wake. Beautiful wake for a grandpa. We ate an absolute feast of his wow. face. Pass the salt. That's how we wanted to go out. Pass the salt. So they put the ad in the newspaper and they wait with their pistols for the witness to appear at their address given in the paper. Dupin believes him to be a... Do you say Gibbon in the paper? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thought so. Dupin believes this witness is going to be a sailor for also found at the crime scene was a knot tied in a way only used by Navy men. So... Observing all the time. Oh. Observing all the time. And he had so much knowledge. See, I, I, I thought you were going to say he was an assailant, but no, I think both can be true. Yes, that's true. A, a sailor and an assailant. These are the big two. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's going to happen? Well, the sailor arrived as predicted, and Dupin pulled his pistol out and told the sailor that he could have his ape back after he told him what happened. Dupin assured the sailor that he knew he was innocent. He just wanted to know the truth. The sailor agreed in part because he didn't want to see the banker who'd been arrested for the murder be punished for a crime he didn't commit. And this is uh, another classic part of a detective story where the mystery is all explained at the end. So the sailor explained that he captured the orangutan while in Borneo and brought it back to Paris. He kept the orangutan hidden with the intention of selling it. On the morning of the murder, after a night out on the beers with the boys, or as Poe writes, quote, a frolic on the night, which I like. That's better. That's better than beers, beers with the boys. boys. Frolic. You go out for a frolic on the night? Yeah, I'm up for a frolic. I mean, who isn't? <laughs> frolic of frothies? Yeah, frolic of the froth. After the frolic on the froth, the sailor had returned to his home and had found that the ape had broken free from the cupboard where he was being held. So, not a great place for an orangutan. He was hidden in the cupboard. 
honestly, this guy, like, they're saying, we know you didn't do it. He is entirely responsible for these murders. <laughs> All I did was lock up an orangutan in my cupboard. I've got nothing to do with it. That I smuggled illegally from overseas. I'm assuming illegally, otherwise, why is he smuggling it? Right, yeah. So he comes. he's come home to find the orangutan is broken free. The orangutan was sitting there with shaving cream on its face and it was holding a razor in one hand. He'd obviously seen the sailor shave before and was imitating him. The Frenchman reached for his whip that he was using to control the animal, but the orangutan panicked and jumped out an open window, razor in hand. So I do like the image of an orangutan shaving in this guy's bedroom. I think I feel like this is the all the modern you know the detective stories since then have followed nearly everything apart from they all seem a little more believable than this somehow. Yes. <laughs> Even the far-fetched ones where it's like well I won't say I won't spoil any you've done that on podcast past but you know when a whole <laughs> town kills someone at the same time doesn't tell or something else like that you're like that's a bit far-fetched but it's no an escaped orangutan who was trying to shave ended up slitting someone's throat. You're absolutely right. It's um, because yeah, sometimes there are mysteries like they come back and it turns out that there was someone that the the person that they murdered knew twenty years earlier, but they just didn't recognise them. It's like how did they not recognise them? Yeah, yeah, they 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 do a fair few far fetched ones, but this does feel like the most far fetched that I've come across. So just to finish off, what happened with so. The orangutans run out the window, razor in hand. The sailor chased him down the street where it saw a light on in a window in an apartment in Rue Morgue. The orangutan then proceeded to enter after climbing up the lightning rod, as Dupin guessed. The sailor followed and climbed up the rod but couldn't make the leap into the window like the orangutan could, so he could only watch on through the window. Right. While speaking in French. Yes. In a gruff voice. Yes, and inside the apartment were two women with their backs turned to the window. The orangutan grabbed the older lady's hair and, quote, was flourishing the razor about her face in imitation of the motions of a barber. So he's, like, dancing around like a barber. I don't know where an orangutan from Borneo has ever seen that, but he's doing that. Yeah, he's seen it. He saw it whilst trapped in a cupboard. (laughs) Yeah, they lived opposite a barber, I'm sure. Yeah. So the women started screaming at this point. The orangutan panicked and slashed the older woman's throat, and angered by the sight of the blood, it then strangled the younger woman with its large and powerful hands. The sailor had seen all of this, and when the orangutan realized that his, quote, master, for want of a better word, was watching it, it panicked and stuffed the younger lady in, uh, in the chimney and threw the older lady out the back window. The two voices that the neighbours heard were his, the sailor, and the orangutan was the unidentified voice. So he was yelling at it through the window, and the orangutan was going, "Oh, I don't know what to do. I've just, I've just killed, I've just killed two people," and no one knew what it was saying. Oh, it sucks. This is the most brutal animal cruelty story. <laughs> uh, it's, it, yeah. Anyway, it's fuck. It's rough. There's, there's no, no winners in this one, really. At this point, the sa- apart from Dupont, yes, that's right. Well, at this point, the sailor also panics, slid down the lightning rod, and just ran away. So that is the murder. There is a conclusion to the story. Dupin and the and the narrator used the sailor's evidence to get Le Bon, the banker, off his charges. 
We never know how, but the sailor apparently found the orangutan and sold him to the zoo to make a tidy profit. So there is no justice in this story. There's no justice at all. Uh, Dupin explained the crime to the head of police, who isn't stoked to be outwitted by a member of the general public, which is obviously a future trope of many private detectives. He's like, how did you know this? You should leave it up to the leave police work to the professionals, basically. The book ends with Dupin commenting to his friend about the police officer and his lack of imagination. He says, quote, It's all head and no body, like the pictures of the goddess Laverna, or at best, all head and shoulders, like a codfish. But he is a good creature after all. I like him especially for one masterstroke of Kant by which he has attained his reputation of ingenuity. I mean the way he has, and then there's a French phrase, which I cannot pronounce, which translates as, to deny that which is, and explain that which is not. Fantastic. So he's basically saying that he's not a great analyzer. He's not a bad police officer, but he's not a great analyzer like me. More of the chess player than the game of cards player, harking back to the simile at the start of the story, the two types of thinkers. Yeah. And the phrase head and head and shoulders like a codfish. Yeah, oh, did that take off? That is. I love it. That is beautiful stuff. That's <laughs> what a funny way to describe a cod. <laughs> All head and shoulders. All head and bloody shoulders. This thing. Much like uh, I think we once talked about how snakes are all neck. Yeah. <laughs> a snake is all neck. <laughs> snakes all neck. Cod's bloody all head and shoulders, mate. And you know fins and tails and stuff, but you know mainly head and shoulders. If you know what I mean. I do. <laughs> I, th- I, I thought do. you did. I thought you would. Um. So, so uh, that's the story. So I really did. Uh, did I? I really um, uh, stuffed that up by mentioning the cover of the book at the start. I assume, although people probably would have figured out the crossover nature of it. Maybe. Yeah, that's right. I mean, otherwise, why would it be a book G crossover? Uh, so it is. Yeah, I don't. I, nearly always, the ending is not super satisfying with these things. Because especially when it's not, I don't know. How did how do you feel about the ending? It felt like it was. It probably at the time would have been amazing, but now it's like, all right. So this is pretty silly. Yeah, I got to keep reminding myself. Like I was laughing at the bits where it's like, and suddenly the orangutan was shaving with a razor. Like, but yeah. Okay. Uh, like we said at the start, I got to like keep reminding myself that this is the first one that no one else had done this. So it is, it is amazing. Like in terms of. Like, it's creativity, but, like, there are definitely bits of the story that don't hold up like a modern yeah, a modern novel well, would. Similar to uh, The Raven, you know, one of his other fa- famous ones. Uh, and I, as a kid, it was my absolute least favourite episode of The Simpsons where they just read out The Raven and Bart was The Raven. Yeah, I was the same at the time. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to skip this one. Skip this, skip this bit. <laughs> Yeah. But I thought, I'd, just to finish up before I get you to score it out of five, I thought I'd talk about the influence of the novel to remind ourselves how you know, how it did change a lot of things. I'm going to quote quickly from the Wikipedia page on the murders in the Rue Morgue, which I thought fantastically sums up if, its influence. Uh, this is a quote from Jeffrey Myers, who was a Poe biographer. He said, It changed the history of world literature. 
Often cited as the first detective story, the character of Dupin became the prototype for many future fictional detectives, including Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. The genre is distinctive from a general mystery story in that it focuses on analysis. It established many tropes that would become common elements in mystery fiction. A lot of things that we've talked about, but just to recap, the eccentric but brilliant detective, the bumbling constabulary, so the police officer, the first person narration by a close personal friend, much like nearly all the Sherlock Holmes stories are told by his friend Dr. John Watson, and back to the quote, Poe also portrays the police in an unsympathetic manner as a sort of foil to the detective. So that's that's that. And it would also he would become a character in more than one story. So the story's detective Dupin would reappear in two more short stories written by Poe, The Mystery of Marie Roger and The Purloined Letter, both a few years later. Ah, so there was a little series that he yeah, started up. Again, with that's him. like a thing, you know, the recurring Detective who keeps coming back and solving different mysteries each time. Yeah, great. I love it. I'm a big fan. I, um, you got me into it, really. I'd sort of, I'd seen a few episodes of this and that over the years, but um, your love of Poirot got me into it, and I've watched. I reckon I've, I've watched a, a good chunk of that series now. There's so many episodes. Oh, I just love it. It's just it's well made, and I think I've mentioned this to you before because it's set in the past. Even the episodes that were made in the late 80s, which are now older than I am. Well, and they've always been older than I am. I should should say that. There was no changing point in, in the way time works. But um, even those early episodes don't look that outdated now, like, say, any other show that was shot in the 80s do, because it was set during the you know the 20s, 30s, and 40s. It already has this older like look. Pre-age. Yeah, it's pre-age. It's great. It's, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't look dated at all, whereas you watch Diagnosis Murder from around the same yeah, time. Yeah, it looks quite silly. It's sort of like it's charmingly aged and dated. Mm, but... but yeah, the fashion, the cars, what's going on in their hairstyle, it looks a bit, you know, it's like, wow, this is very 90s. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, no, that's great. So if it wasn't for this book, none of that probably would exist. It's It's amazing to think about the people that it influenced that then influenced other people that and you know, that it just got the ball rolling yeah it's because it's the kind of thing where you go it, at, at first i'm like well someone would have come up with it eventually but not necessarily and if they did it could they could have come up with it in a different yeah. way and influenced people in different ways and who knows or you know butterfly wing stuff it's a little theory i'm working on called the butterfly <laughs> effect oh, okay where uh butterfly flaps its wings etc is that so, a is that an yeah that's one of mine is that a nirvana thing or yeah Yep, yep. You know the cover of In Utero, those wings? Yep, yeah. Yeah, they're, I think of them as butterfly wings. <laughs> All right, well, we've laid out why it's important, but what of the actual story, I'm going to ask you to give it a score out of five, which you can, in your mind, you can factor in the importance or you can just base it on the story alone. What do you think you're going to score it? I feel like I'm going to need to factor in the importance um, because... I mean, I yeah, because I, I love those kinds of stories, uh, but this one it was not a satisfying end. If this was an episode of Poirot, I would have been like, "Come on, come mate, on. come on!" But we definitely, come we on. definitely would have been able to cover. We've been looking for a way t- to cover Poirot and primates, but it just never happened, did it? No, I just have not spotted one. We found a way with X Files recently, and I've since found another episode. <laughs> Um, the invisible gorilla one, but um, so maybe we'll do that one day. But yeah, all right. And you, you score them out of five, don't you? Yeah. 
all right. Well, I'm going to give it um, three, three out of five, and that that's bumped up a bit from importance perspective. Okay, three out of five. Fantastic. I have also factored in the importance of it historically uh, for popular culture, and, and there I've bumped it up to a four out of five because of that. Right. I think I was starting at pretty low. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's fine. And it, uh, apologies if any offence is caused to the. No, I think that's state. I think that's fine because I'm glad that I know about this and that you can think about how influential it is. But put it this way, I'd rather read a Sherlock Holmes short story than go back and read the second and third Dupin story. I think. Yeah, you just pay you pay your respect to it. It's like I I appreciate the you know the football from the from the 1920s. Yeah. Uh, but I would much prefer to watch a modern game. Yeah, that's right. Even though I appreciate how great they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You realise it's important, but at the same time, you'd rather watch the new stuff. Yeah. Although, that, I mean, that shows how, how good the writing of um, Christie was for you, because you... I mean, she didn't write those novels all that recently. <laughs> that's they... absolutely right. She, Hold up. She, some of those were created closer to the time of uh, this being written than us being alive now. So she's more than... You know, she's not even the midway point, so... What a master. Absolute master. And I actually haven't done any uh, Poirot stories on here yet. A few people have asked for them, so hopefully I'll get to them. Because I do love talking about it. Yeah, great. I'd love to listen to those ones. Uh, but the... <laughs> do you think you're going to annoy... Because you'll have a few few lit heads uh, listen to this show, obviously. And I imagine that would infuriate some saying... Oh, I mean, Edgar Allan Poe's no Agatha Christie. Would that annoy people? <laughs> oh, possibly. And, you know, to each their own. I've also done Edgar Allan Poe previously. I've, I did The Raven and uh, also The Telltale Heart earlier on in, in this show. And it did make me appreciate it more than The Simpsons episode, reading The Raven back as an right. adult rather than watching it as an eight-year-old going, can we just get back to the normal Simpsons? I haven't caught that. I haven't caught that episode of Book Sheet yet. I'll have to check that the Raven. Yeah, out. so and I did like that. And the Telltale Heart is, you know, that's a great a lot of suspense in there. So I, I Yeah, I think well this is different, you know, like the the way um because it's sort of like there's a it's almost like there's a trick to it and there's a formula that's been improved upon from where he started. Yeah, I don't know why it's different that uh this version of a of a who done it story has dated but his other work hasn't dated so mm. much if you know what i mean yeah, it's... i'm not making a lot of sense tonight i feel like i've been off dave i'd like to make a formal apology <laughs> apology to your listeners um i haven't been on tonight and uh i will probably i expect to not be back on the show for another year and i think it's deserved <laughs> put you back on the bench for a year well <laughs> yeah. i'm afraid we do not accept your apology because it is unnecessary <laughs> oh, that's very sweet well that does bring us to the end of the uh, discussing the murder in the room morgue but if you want to hear more about the life of Edgar Allan Poe you can of course check out this week's episode of Do Go On he died in uh, let's just say weird circumstances and uh, we talk about that on the episode and also he lived in depth including his childhood and his upbringing which was all of it was cr- pretty wild Yeah, you know some um, yeah, he's, he's had a very strange life. Yeah, I think he also lived in weird circumstances as well. It was all weird. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, other um, episodes that do go on that might interest uh, 
book types. The bookish would be like uh, we did an episode. You also did a biography on Arthur Conan Doyle and yeah, uh, that's right. how he created Sherlock Holmes. And also, which would probably mention this story, did it? Uh, yes, I think it, it it talked about Poe's influence, but then we also talked about how Sherlock Holmes is created Doyle at the end of his life also had a very sort of strange back half to his life believing in um uh, supernatural things he was he was a big oh, big believer right. in yes. fairies yeah he became very molderish yes he became very fox moldery definitely became a molder and um yeah you can check that out we also have done uh J.R. Tolkien, J.K. Rowling, Roald Dahl, all these people having different lives. <laughs> Interesting lives I should say. The Roald Dahl one, if you want to be a fan of him, maybe don't listen to that because he was not as great a person. Yeah, I mean there's a little Yeah, I can't fully remember what it was, but I think it was something about him being anti-semitic. Yes. Perhaps. It's unfortunate when you you look into people great people from the past you normally uncover something very unlikable about him. We've st- often like real bad. We found that but, time and time um, again, haven't we? Like this Adolf Hitler guy. I don't know if you've heard. He, he, yeah, there's a few skeletons in his closet. Let's just say that. Okay. All right. Maybe a future episode there. <laughs> Shakespeare is another one we have done on on Do Go On. Was that another one of your reports? I can't remember if it was me or Jess. I think it was me or Jess. I think. I've also done uh, Agatha Christie in the time she disappeared for over a week. Oh, that's right. And the mystery of what, yeah, what happened. Yeah, we've got quite a back catalogue of of uh, author, author-ish stories. I wonder what other... I mean, yeah, maybe book cheap listeners are in a great position to suggest good biographies or, or stories that relate to famous authors. Mm, I've had a few people ask, uh, Ernest Hemingway lived quite a rugged life with many adventures, so... That might be worth tackling. I think that's a often suggested one. Yeah, I'd be I'd be interested to hear about him. Um, it's funny. Yeah, all I know about him is uh, yeah, I think I think he's portrayed in a in a Midnight in Paris. That um, oh yeah, Woody Allen film. Another guy who uh, I don't know if you know has had some some bad accusations made about him, but um, <laughs> the. And there's also a, there's a line in a Nick Cave song where he says, uh, "But he died the Hemingway." Which, um, if we ever did an episode on it, I would understand that. Ah, lyric. I don't think it's a very nice way to go. No, I think it might be a brutal way to go. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, people can uh, check out Dugan. They can also check out Primates, which is your show you've been doing for uh, over two years, or just on. Up to two years, I guess, because you're hitting 100 episodes, including a live episode this weekend. That's right. Yeah, if people are keen, they can get tickets. Uh, maybe you can put a link in the show notes. Dave, hopefully you're going to make an appearance on there as well. You've been a guest many times before. Great show. A lot of fun. Um, we've talked about a bunch of different Simpsons episodes and that sort of stuff. And uh, we're about to record a little uh, post-sample uh, episode, which will go out this week as well. Which will probably talk a little bit more about uh, Poe's story here and a few other things, um, but yeah, if, uh, if if people are keen, they should definitely check out the Primates back catalogue. It's probably not as sophisticated as this show, but it's at least as fun. <laughs> yes, definitely true. I didn't realise the subtle dig there when I said at least. I mean, it's a, about as fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's at least as fun as this snooze fest. This piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we go, Matt, would you mind if I gave a few shout-outs to people that support this show as well as Do Go On and Primates on a little thing called Patreon? I would love it so much. So basically, the way that we're able to do lots and lots of podcasts and put them out all the time is people support the shows on Patreon at patreon.com slash dogoonpod and in exchange you will get uh, three bonus episodes from Matt, Jess and I now. Usually it's a bonus episode of Do Go On, so we'll report on a topic from history. We'll do a, a random thing like a quiz or some sort of uh, trivia segment, something like that. And then we've now started a new Patreon-only podcast called Phrasing the Bar, where once a month we are going through the films of everyone's favourite actor, Brendan Fraser. So good. I think it was a really, really good episode, getting great feedback about episode one, which is about his uh, feature film debut, or debut, (laughs) depending on how you say it, (laughs) which was Dogfight. Uh, a film that actually starred River Phoenix. Our man Fraser only had a pretty minor role, but it was memorable. It was memorable. He had probably the greatest line in cinematic history, which I will not ruin for people, but it is. I'll never forget it. I oh, know. What a way to... to a, a real statement of intent, yeah. I'd say. So, and uh, people that support the show also get to tell me their favourite book, and as a way to thank them, I'll read out their name and their favourite book, and... Uh, I've got six here. Would you mind if I read a few out quickly, Matt? I would love it. I would love it a lot. All right. Well, big shout out and thank you to Abigail Hansen. Thanks, Abigail, who's written in to say, my favorite book is City of Thieves by David Benioff. H- historical fiction, which is my favorite genre. There you go. Love it. Historical fiction. Yeah, that is a, that is a fun genre. Yeah, where people take a... Messing with the past a little yeah. bit. Love it. My mum... It's, sort of, it's like... It's history fan fiction. Basically, yeah. Well, my mum's a fan of... um. There's like these crime novels that are... They're crimes that are solved by Sherlock Holmes creator Arthur Conan Doyle and his real-life friend Oscar Wilde. And uh, they team up together and solve mysteries together. And that's she loves them. <laughs> that does sound fun. Uh, All right, I'd like to also thank now a great supporter of the show, a man whose name we love to say, Jacoby DeAngel. Oh. On you, Jacoby. Jacoby. Which Matt likes to say is Jacoby every time. Jacoby has told me my favourite book is The Hobbit by Tolkien. I've loved it for a long time, but it's only recently become my favourite because of how much I've been studying it as of late. The Hobbit has inspired my own writing, specifically a a film script I'm working on. Good on you, Jacoby. He writes, hopefully Dave gets it into book cheat sometime in the near future. I'd like to do that, actually, The Hobbit. I would. Oh, no, I think he was talking about his own uh, script. Oh, yeah. He wants you to cover I'd also that. love to do that, Jacoby. I tell you, a quick tip for Jacoby. Um, see if you can get Peter Jackson attached. Um, I think that'll do good things for your script. Really? That's a good hot tip. Yeah, if you can get it, I mean, we're a bit close to him down here in Australia. He's just over the, over the, uh, what do we call it? Over, over the, the ditch? No, over the, across the ditch. Uh, we can have a chat if we bump into Pete. Yeah, I'll put it in. Um, Dave actually has a pretty good relationship Yeah, put with in him. a good word with, uh, with PJ. <laughs> the Jack, as I call him. I always give, wait, which one is he again? Is he the, is he the suit man or is he the... <laughs> 
director. Because I, I think I'm actually closer with the guy at the suit making Peter well, Jackson. But only one of them has their own theme song that goes like this. <gasps> Peter Jackson. Doom. Peter doom, Jackson. Doom, doom, doom. Doom, doom, doom. I mean, which one's bigger? The one with the theme song or the other guy? Come on. Mm-hmm. I would also like to shout out now to uh, Kendra and Eric Mickles. Uh, but Kendra specifically has written in, my favourite books are The Keeper of Lost Causes by Jussi Adler Olsen and Big Little Lies by Leanne Moriarty. If you like Danish murder thrillers uh, but find Girl with the Dragon Tattoo to be too dark, the uh, Department Q series by Adler Olsen is a fantastic. There you go. And uh, also, I've, she's got a postscript here, Leanne Mor- Moriarty is my favourite author and I love all her books minus her newest one Cop That Ooh, I like your old stuff better than your new stuff you tell them Kendra Classic. on you Kendra thanks very much Rachel Johnson here my favourite book is Outlander by Diana Gabaldon although I still call it by the original British and Australian title which was Cross Stitch it's about the uh, Scottish Highlands leading up to the Jacobite Rebellion in 1745 with the addition of a new time traveller from just after the Second World War. Rachel's got two copies. One of twen- is 20 years old, which I had personally signed by Diana Gabaldon, the writer. And another one I uh, bought as a souvenir when I visited Culloden. It's the scene of the last battle of the Jacobite Rebellion in Scotland. There you go, I've been there, and it's a very, yeah, very emotional place. It's one of those places where... I don't know if it's the history that's made this happen, but when you're there, lots and lots of people died there. You could see cars driving not that far away, but it was so eerie, you couldn't hear them. Right. Yes. Uh, I think my ancestors were involved there, the Stuarts. That's right. Well, I think they were sadly on the losing side. Yes. So there you go. Uh, thanks to Rachel. I've got a couple more here. Katerina Gutierrez says, My favourite book, purely from an angst teen point of view, is The Outsiders. It was the only book I was forced to read in high school that was moderately enjoyable. Thanks again to Katerina. Finally, Matt, I would like to thank, fantastic name here, Luigi Delos Reyes. Oh my goodness, what a name. Luigi's written, My favourite book is House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. It's a little pretentious. Oh, I know this story, Dave. This one is... Uh, this is actually the untold story of the fourth little pig. Uh, made his house out of leaves and the wolf absolutely tore it apart. <laughs> it was... I think that's why they cut it from the story. A bit stupid. A bit far-fetched. A bit far-fetched. You're building your house out of leaves, pig? Come on! <laughs> what What next? An orangutan that's going to be shaving? What are we talking about here? It's ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, what are we in, fantasy land? Get Mulder on the phone. <laughs> Luigi writes, It's a little pretentious and esoteric, but I still think that the atmosphere it creates is some of the best in horror fiction. Yeah, well, I think he's, he's filled in a little bit, a few of the blanks in my memory, but yeah, it was a horror take on the three little pigs <laughs> uh, and that mysterious fourth pig. Whatever happened to him? Uh, well, he actually uh, saw a barber and started mimicking <laughs> shaving, and it all went horribly wrong. <laughs> With his little trotter. Yeah. Well, thank you so much to everyone that supports the show on Patreon. One more time, it's patreon.com slash do go on pod. And uh, yeah, 
thanks very much if you are so inclined to do that you get a, a bit of stuff supporting the show and we get your support and we totally appreciate it yes and it's quite it's become quite a, a big mini network here we've got the do go on show where it all began then primates this show book cheat i started a show as well with my cousin sam called listen now which is about uh going back through classic albums the first season was going through the back catalogue of classic australian pub rock band called chisel but um the next season which is going to start imminently is going to be about a different uh, classic out al- bands every week um and then i've also started another new show dave because i can't believe well, can't get enough <laughs> of it called matt chat which is a, a youtube show and uh, dave you're actually on the very first episode thank you um, so if people want to check that out, they can go to youtube.com slash Matt Stewart. And yeah, episode one is a, a, a fun half an hour chat with me and Dave. And I've been um, learning a bit of editing as well. So trying to make it a bit more interesting. But you can look at our bloody pretty okay faces yeah. as you go if you want as our well. Our faces are there. I might, sorry to sorry to brag there, but yeah, they're pretty okay. I'll uh, link to all those things in the episode description, as well as a link to uh, where you can suggest a book for me to cover on the show. And I'll give you a shout-out if I uh, choose that book, play, short story, whatever you want. Uh, But that does bring us to the end of the episode. Matt Stewart, thank you very much for joining us for this third of four times. And um, I'm sure we'll see you next week, maybe, unless you're busy. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me, Book Chuck. Thanks, mate. And until next week, as we always say here at Book Cheat... Books forever. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want, it's up to you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.